Good afternoon, passengers. This is your captain speaking. I'd like to welcome everyone aboard this podcast. We are currently cruising at an altitude of 35,000 feet and airspeed of 450 miles per hour. Weather is clear and sunny with a high of 75 degrees. The cabin crew will be coming around in about 20 minutes to offer you a light snack and beverage. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. everybody and welcome aboard Pilot Error. I'm Tom Feeney, writer for Wang's Chop Movie Magazine. You may know me from such podcasts as The Deep Dive Podcast, The Deep Dive Microcast, Mysteries of the Deep, and Hollywood Hype. We are not affiliated with Deep Dive Sausage Recycling or Deep Dive Lingerie for Pets. This is Pilot Error, where we look at TV shows that went belly up before their time slot. This episode, we turn back the clock, not once, but twice. First, to the dawn of the American Revolution, and then to another historical touchstone, the same year when Macho Man Randy Savage beat Ric Flair for the WWF heavyweight title. This is the story of the 1992 CBS television sitcom, 1775. Now many of you dear listeners learned about the American Revolution from history classes in grade school or high school. More of you probably learned about it from repeated viewings of the smash musical Hamilton. Or if you're like me, you learned about it from the iconic 1970s educational cartoon, Schoolhouse Rock. Well, no matter how you learned about the Revolutionary War, you know that the brutal yet ultimately hopeful struggle of the Continental Army against the British Redcoats was the defining event in American history. In the two and a half centuries since, the United States has seen more than its share of triumphs and tragedies. And sometimes it feels like we are less united than ever. But we can all agree on one thing. Television is pretty damn awesome. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I didn't know any other way to segue out of that. Now, somewhat surprisingly, there have been very few fictionalized accounts of the Revolutionary War on television. Not, of course, counting the dramatizations of the lives of certain important figures and, and reenactments of famous battles and, and that sort of thing. But even fewer are the depictions of war that were played for laughs. At first glance, that might not seem terribly odd, considering that war itself is rarely funny. However, American television has managed to turn conflict into comedy on several occasions. Hogan's Heroes was a situation comedy set in a Nazi prisoner of war camp during World War II. Yeah, it already sounds funny. 
Well, the show dealt with a ragtag group of allied POWs running a secret surveillance operation out of the aforementioned camp. And, at the same time, foiling the inept Nazi commandant and his bumbling sergeant. Hogan's Heroes ran for six seasons on CBS from 1965 to 1971. And only a year after that show ended its run, what would be considered the greatest wartime television series of all time made its debut. series MASH was based on the 1970 feature film of the same name, which was, in turn, based on the 1968 novel by Richard Hooker. The series about the doctors, nurses, and support personnel at a mobile army surgical hospital near the front lines during the Korean War redefined what a half-hour sitcom could be. The show seamlessly blended hilarious comedy with literally deadly serious drama. It presented with remarkable acuity the horrors of war, the loneliness of being far from home, and the constant struggle to maintain sanity in a truly insane situation. It was a remarkable enough achievement to maintain the quality of acting and writing over the long term, especially when you are dealing with a show that pretty much takes place in one setting over its entire run. A run that lasted for 11 seasons, far longer than the Korean War, which, for the record, lasted three years, one month, and two days. MASH set an incredibly high bar for the so-called dramedy format. Now, aside from being wartime comedies, Hogan's Heroes and M.A.S.H. had something else in common. They shared the same network, CBS. Now, the so-called Tiffany Network had more than its fair share of comedies set either during wartime or just with a military setting. Shows like Gomer Pyle USMC, McHale's Navy, Private Benjamin, and Major Dad have all been on CBS's primetime lineup over the years. That takes us to 1992. Cable TV was entering its adolescence, with just over 60% of all U.S. households being wired up. MTV was barely a decade old and was just beginning to shift away from its original format of music videos to its own programming. The three major networks, plus Fox, which had not yet committed fully to a full week-long broadcasting schedule, were still the big boys on the block. The internet wasn't yet in the mix. In fact, the first real web browser called Mosaic wouldn't be released until a year later in 1993. Well, the whole point of this is to uh, state the fact that in the early 90s, the network still had a stranglehold on the type of content most Americans could watch. Network TV was in its doldrums. Of course, there were gems to be found, but this isn't that kind of podcast. In the 90s, the television sitcom was 
much the same like it was in the 80s and the 70s. You know, you had setup joke, setup joke, setup joke. There's an ending where a lesson is learned only to be forgotten the following week because the characters never really change or grow. And the worst offenders, family sitcoms. You had harried moms, clueless dads, snarky teens, and precocious youngins who ruled the airwaves. Now, that brings us to our pilot error of today, a perfectly forgettable family sitcom set during the Revolutionary War, specifically 1775. Produced by a company called Reeves Entertainment, 1775 was supposedly inspired by one of the most popular British comedies of all time, Blackadder. Now, if you're not familiar with this show, shame on you. Well, I mean, no, it really is a pretty amazing show. Blackadder is also what you might call a historical sitcom. Uh, from 1983 to 1989, there were four seasons, or series as the Brits call them, each one taking place in a different period in American history. The main constant in all four seasons was legendary comedic actor Rowan Atkinson, who would go on to play the iconic Mr. Bean. Right, Maury. Let's try again, shall we? This is called adding. If I have two beans, and then I add two more beans, what do I have? Some beans. <laughs> yes and no. Let's try again, shall we? I have two beans, then I add two more beans. What does that make? A very small casserole. <laughs> Baldrick, the ape creatures of the Indus have mastered this. Now try again. One, two, three, four. So how many are there? Three. What? And that one. <laughs> three and that one. So if I add that one to the three, what will I have? Oh, some beans. <laughs> yes. To you, Baldrick, the Renaissance was just something that happened to other people, wasn't it? Well, if you care to watch Blackadder, and you should, you can find it on streaming services BritBox and Hulu both need a subscription. And back to 1775. The show starred actor Ryan O'Neill, who was, at one time, a bona fide movie star. From 1970 to 1980, O'Neill starred in films like Love Story, Paper Moon, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, and A Bridge Too Far. But by the end of the 1980s, however, the roles seemed to dry up. Whether or not it was his reputation for being difficult to work with, being a womanizer, and having a terrible temper, or just the vagaries of show business, O'Neill found himself having to take roles that would have been beneath him only a few years before, including going back to network television, where O'Neill got his start. His co-star was Leslie Ann Down, a British actor who shifted from movies to television and has had a prolific career, uh, Down has appeared in films like, and these titles are 100% real, Beastmaster 3, The Eye of Braxis, Munchie Strikes Back, and Death Wish, The Face of Death. Hmm. Down also made many television appearances, guest starring in shows like Dallas, Diagnosis Murder, and soap operas, Days of Our Lives, 
and the bolder the beautiful. In 1775, O'Neill and Down played married couple Jeremy and Annabel Proctor, owners of a Philadelphia inn called The Cock and Hound. They have three daughters, Maud, Eliza, and Abby, none of whom have been married off, much to their parents' chagrin. Eliza, Eliza, you have a very bad habit of if interrupting If you don't do something moment. about Maud soon, I'm never getting married. Of course you will. Why do I even talk to you? I don't know. <laughs> Maud is the eldest, so I can't get married until she does. You're only 16. Mother was married and pregnant when she was 16. That was an accident. <laughs> he means the marriage. Excuse me, we were talking about me. I want to get married. And ever since Maud broke up with Ben, she hasn't even made an attempt to meet anyone. They're not exactly lining up at the door to meet her. Oh, I don't know why. I mean, Maud is intelligent. She's mature. That says something. Yes. Will die a virgin. <gasps> you know, Eliza's beginning to remind me more and more of that great aunt of yours that was hanged in Salem. Now, as you can tell, the three daughters' characters run the full cliché gamut from snobby opportunist to bookish klutz to rebellious outsider. So, money for the Proctor family is pretty tight due to fears of an impending revolution hurting the inn's business. This becomes more of an issue when the family is set on the daughters attending the upcoming Freemasons Ball, where the young ladies might meet a future husband. Unfortunately, Jeremy Proctor can't afford to send his daughters. I know what to do about Maud. Next week is the annual Freemasons Ball. Every eligible young man in Philadelphia will be there, including Ben. Well, what time do you think Ben can pick you all up? We'll buy Maud a new dress. We'll do her hair. We'll take her... Forget it, forget it. We haven't got that kind of money. Besides, Maud's not that big a problem. Listen, I'm not too keen on these uh, street corner revolutionaries you've been associating with. Oh, they're called patriots, and they're trying to change things. Looking like that? Dad, these are the 70s, not the 50s. Oh, sorry. What, do you think because I'm your father I didn't take part in protests when I was young? It was our generation. It was our generation that came up with the slogan, no taxation without representation. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Cock and Hound Inn gets a visit from the local and universally despised colonial governor, Massengill. Yeah, yeah, you get the joke. The governor is a representative of the hated British royal authorities. Here, he's played for laughs by noted actor Jeffrey Tambor. Hey now. You don't like the British, do you, Father? Like them? I despise them. And those incompetent, ridiculous fools they send here to govern us. Ah, Governor Massingale, what an honor. And I might say, a pleasure to have you visit us. Proctor, are you kissing my bottom again? Well, of course I am, but if you're going to kiss bottom, why not kiss the best? <laughs> oh, Jeremy, what am I going to do? The politicians back home are hounding me for more money, money, money. Tax people's incomes and be done with it. No, no politician would ever be that stupid. <laughs> why not tax candles? Candles? Yes. Most taxable items are tied to the ups and downs of people's incomes. But at night, everyone needs to see. So revenue from a candle tax would remain constant. Constant revenue. Oh, I like that. 
<laughs> a candle tax. Well, I, I, I must go. Oh, that one is a gem. Thanks to the new candle tax, money for the Proctors is even tighter than ever. So, swallowing his pride, Jeremy Proctor goes to his brother-in-law to ask for a loan. His brother-in-law just happens to be George Washington. Ah, oh, there you are, George. They, they told me I'd find you here. Am I interrupting anything? Of course not. I always have time for you, Jeremy. So what brings you to Mount Vernon? Well, the fact of the matter is that the inn isn't doing very well financially. I hoped you could help us out. Of course I can. Really? Have you tried putting those little mints on your guest pillows at bedtime? <laughs> George, I'm here to borrow money. You are? Oh. Yeah, I happen to know you're one of the richest men in the colonies, George. As my friend Ben Franklin always says, a fool and his money are soon parted. Then why is this taking so long? <laughs> if you recognize the father of our country's voice as one Adam West, a.k.a. the Batman of the campy 1960s show, congratulations. Oh, speaking of President Washington... Hey, kids, it's time for a fun fact. Did you know that George Washington himself was, according to multiple accounts, a pretty funny guy? It's true. One delegate from Rhode Island to the Continental Congress described Washington as having a, quote, pleasant smile and sparkling vivacity of wit and humor, end quote. And apparently the French thought he was a laugh riot. Francois Marbois, secretary of the French diplomatic minister, noted that Washington, quote, is serious in business, but outside of that, he permits himself a restricted gaiety. Washington was even present at a roast in his honor. Uh, that is a, a televised Dean Martin celebrity roast from 1975. Yeah. That you did many great things to go down in history, like the time that you threw a dollar across the Rappahannock River. And it wasn't easy. Use paper money, you idiot. <laughs> and remember Valley Forge. Remember the freezing battles. And remember Cornwallis. And remember when you crossed the Delaware. Yes, with your men rowing and freezing in the boat. But you stood up at the helm. And why did you stand up? Because every time you sat down, some idiot handed you an oar. <laughs> you think you had it rough crossing the Delaware, crossing in that boat. How about that imbecile in the water swimming alongside, painting the picture? <laughs> lovely Martha Washington after she divorced Ralph Cramden. And... But I knew that you would go down in history because you're a great man and you came back as a great man, just like General Grant, who came back as a tomb, and Lincoln, who came back as a tunnel. Let's never forget, George, that you came back as a dollar bill, which means you're worth about 38 cents today. Okay, that's enough of that. Back to 1775. So failing to secure any funds from General Washington, Jeremy Proctor returns to the inn to break the sad news to his family. Until things take a turn. Mother, which fabric would make the best gown for the ball? Ball? What are you talking about? Oh, well, Jeremy, I assumed you'd find some way to bungle it, so I saw my sister Martha, who's in town today, shopping. Her husband likes her to look nice, and I borrowed the money. Girls, would you leave the room, please? 
I need Mother to help me select my ball gown. Eliza, I think Dad's about to have a hissy fit. No! <laughs> Do I know, Dad? <laughs> okay, okay, you've gone too far this time. Jeremy, you'd give up your spleen before you parted with a nickel. Only because it's an unnecessary organ. And like most sitcoms of that era, things ended pretty much exactly the way they began. Unsurprisingly, 1775 did not get picked up as a regular series. It might have easily ended up as a piece of lost media, but even though no series was ever made, the pilot episode actually did air once on CBS the evening of September 5th, 1992. Thanks to the proliferation of the VCR, you too can bask in the old glory of this forgotten show. It is available to watch on YouTube. Now, personally, I thought the pilot wasn't all that bad. It had some clever lines and references, and the acting wasn't awful for the most part, even though the characters were as wooden as George Washington's teeth. Hey kids, it's time for a fun fact. Okay, Washington did not actually have wooden teeth. He had poor dental health for most of his life, requiring dentures and, and other types of fittings, but not wood. His dentures were, in fact, composed of many different materials, including human, cow, and horse teeth, ivory, lead alloy, yikes, copper alloy, and silver alloy. Washington even managed to poach a prominent French dentist away from the British, which he was only too happy to do because, well, you know, British teeth. This podcast has just been cleared to land. As we start our descent, please make sure your seat backs and tray tables are in their full upright position. Make sure your seat belt is securely fastened and all carry-on luggage is stowed underneath the seat in front of you or in the overhead bins. We hope you had a safe and enjoyable listening experience. If you have any comments, go to the deep dive podcast at gmail.com and drop us a line. Any clips used in the podcast are meant for educational purposes only and not to infringe on any existing copyrights. And thanks for flying an Automaton Studios production.